My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Welcome, everyone, to the Stay Sustainable podcast. This is your host, Alec Crawford. And our special guest today is Kareen Golda, PhD in linguistics, founder at West Valley AI, startup executive, and recent Amazon alumna. So welcome, Kareen. Thanks, Alec. It's so great to be here. Well, you know, I usually start off by talking about people's jobs, but you've got a fascinating uh, degree in linguistics. I'm just curious what got you interested in that. Yeah, um, linguistics is my passion, and I've really just always loved language. Um, when I was a kid, I even read the dictionary for fun, uh, literally. <laughs> and then when I was a freshman at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I thought I'd major in either German or Japanese, but then I took an introductory syntax course from Dr. Sandy Chung, and that opened up a whole new world for me. So in that syntax class, we made observations about which sequences of words resulted in sentences and which ones didn't. So for example, you can say in English, the dog chewed the bone, but you can't say dog the chewed the bone or chewed the dog the bone. There's all kinds of sequences that are not possible. And so from those observations, we formulated hypotheses about the structure underlying the sentences that humans produce. And I learned that you can investigate the hidden properties of language from an empirical perspective, kind of like how physicists uncover the principles governing the objects in our world. And to me, that was really fascinating. Super cool. I was hoping it would, it would help you with, uh, you know, do well in the spelling bee, but this sounds way more advanced. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Barbara Partee and her contributions to linguistics. Yeah, Barbara Partee was an early pioneer in formal semantics, and she recognized that the work of philosophers and logicians like Richard Montague was highly relevant to linguistics. And this meant using ideas like truth conditions. So if you take a sentence like, the dog chewed the bone, you can construct this formal representation, which encodes the idea that there is an act of chewing being applied to some specific bone and there was a specific dog performing that act. Um, she also applied mathematical concepts like set theory. So, for example, a brown dog is the intersection of all things which are brown and all things which are dogs. And these were important contributions because it gave linguists a new set of tools for investigating how language works. Super cool. We'll, we'll talk about this and how it's relevant for AI in a minute. But but first, tell me about your experience getting a, a PhD in linguistics at the Ohio State University. Yeah, that was a wonderful experience. My advisor there was Dr. Carl Pollard, and he was one of the founders of this grammatical framework called HPSG. And without getting too technical, the important thing about frameworks like HPSG is that they draw on concepts from computer science, and they're very well suited to being used by computers. 
So in other words, HPSG can be used for natural language processing, which is one of the things that we're currently referring to as AI. So this led directly to my first job out of grad school at a startup that was using HPSG to understand and respond to emails. Very cool. So that was at Inquira, I assume, and and you called um, out. No, actually, that was that was YY Software. Oh, um, okay. You'll, you'll you'll have trouble finding any evidence of it on the web. It was a short lived company, but it was super fun. Really great experience. Got it. So after that, you went to Inquira, and and you called out Derek uh, Barron as as one of the best managers you ever had. So tell us what you were doing there and what made him special. Yeah, uh, Dara Byrne, um, he was, yeah, he was great. I was really interested in joining Inquira at the time because they were using natural language processing to power the internal search systems for large companies. And before Inquira, I had worked at other startups as a computational linguist, and I imagined I'll do something similar at Inquira. Um, but what they really needed me to do there was work in customer support so helping our users configure their systems to optimize the search results on their company's documents. And honestly, that didn't sound very attractive to me. I just I imagined, you know, angry customers, confused customers, and it was just, you know, I imagined it being very unpleasant. Um, but I took the job anyway, and Dara Byrne was my manager. And I am so glad in retrospect that things worked out that way because I learned so much from him. So he taught me how to be empathetic with customers, listen to their perspective, and he could really take any contentious situation and turn it around so everyone walked away feeling successful. That's great. I, you know, if he could bottle that and give a little to me, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, obviously, you spent some time at Amazon. You just uh, left there to, to launch your startup. So what was unique about the culture at Amazon? What did you like and not like? Yeah, well, one unique aspect of Amazon is the focus on a well-defined set of leadership principles. And if you ever go interview at Amazon, that's the thing that you really need to uh, prepare for, is answering questions about these leadership principles. These are things like insist on the highest standards or bias for action, qualities of leadership that Amazon is looking for in its employees. And what impressed me about Amazon is that these concepts are referred to every single day. So not just evaluating job candidates um, and conducting performance reviews, uh, but just really any given meeting where people are finding common ground for decision making, somebody might say, I think this is a situation where we need bias for action. And somebody says, well, we need to balance that against insist on the highest standards. So it becomes a, a kind of a common framework that everybody can use to arrive at good decisions together. That's great. Yeah. Common framework and, and language are, are super important. And, and uh, obviously you're not there anymore. So is, is there anything that you found less appealing about the culture or the firm? Or um, Yeah. What's the dirt on Amazon? Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I just also want to say I really like the people I worked with. My team was wonderful, really talented, you know, very friendly. Uh, what I didn't like, I mean, it's a big tech company and, you know, it's been struggling to provide a positive work atmosphere after the layoffs and there's the return to office policies, which haven't been really well communicated. So, you know, there, there's, there's those kinds of drawbacks that I think you find at any tech company. Yeah, that's fair. And, and just big companies in general, it's, it's tough. Um, 
So, so let's switch gears to LLMs because this is so exciting, you know, because uh, obviously there's a lot of computer scientists focus on this has become part of pop culture, but to talk with an actual real live PhD in linguistics <laughs> about this is going to be awesome. So, so first of all, why did the release of ChatGPT, which started off with just, you know, enthusiasm trigger so much concern about the risks of AI? Yeah, so I think I want to take this opportunity to provide a little more background and you know talk about the fact that AI is a marketing term. Uh, it's, it's come back into fashion lately, and I use that term myself in my company, West Valley AI, because I'm fashionable. And it's 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 okay though. I mean, I've, I've some people still get very pedantic about it, but I've made my my peace with it. But I I would say you know it it really just describes automated methods for doing things with data. And in general, we've all been interacting with AI systems for decades. And when it comes to language, we use things like automated translation, transcription personal assistants like Siri and Alexa, and all of these systems were built with a specific purpose in mind. So some of the underlying technologies for them might be general purpose, like interpreting sounds, uh, things like that. But it, but they're, they're really, you build a product because you want to solve a particular problem. And what changed with ChatGPT is that the system is so open-ended. It's simply trained on very large volumes of text to take a sequence of words and predict what is likely to come next. So this is, you know, one of the things that's known as generative AI. And this has been possible for a while. Uh, it's, it's internally, a, co a company has been working on this for a while. ChatGPT was really the first time that the public was exposed to it. And it really does lead to a kind of human-sounding creativity, which is really impressive, but also really difficult to control. Yeah, that 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 totally makes sense. And yeah, they've been this has been going on a really long time. I mean, November really popped into people's consciousness. And, you know, I obviously started writing about it this year, but um, super interesting. And and I think that, you know, we're just starting to think about the risks of generative AI, you know, really not just as individuals or people working for corporations, but as, but as a society too. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the risks of generative AI, I would say that the most basic risk is that AI amplifies society's existing problems, right? It's, AI is really just automation using data. And by default, people and organizations are incentivized to increase the efficiency of the existing systems using existing data. So to the extent that there are inequalities or inequities in these systems and in this data, it's like adding fuel to the fire. So this is, again, not a new problem necessarily with generative AI. We, we've already seen this when it comes to facial recognition. Um, so facial recognition technologies that the police use uh, to match people to surveillance footage, are, those systems are more likely to wrongly arrest black people because there's fewer people of color in the training data sets. So this is how these inequities kind of build on each other. There, there's also just in generative AI, just to give an example from generative AI, there was a, a recent example where an MIT student used an app called Playground AI. She asked it to make her picture look more professional for LinkedIn. So she was Asian and the app took her Asian features and they gave her blue eyes and lighter skin and said, look, now you look more professional. 
And, you know, this is not something that the system was explicitly trained to do, kind of back to the idea that these systems are, are very generalized. And, and so they pick up on these kinds of, of biases and, and stereotypes, for example, of what it means to look professional. Yeah, that's a little scary. I mean, I think uh, the, the problem with automation is you can automate stupidity, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and I would say the, there's associated risk there too that the the general public places too much trust in these systems. They're not aware of the inherent limitations. They misunderstand how they work. And you know, I've seen a lot of great articles and videos uh, lately that do a really good job of explaining this to the public. But there's there's also just a lot of hype mixed in there. So it's really difficult for the public, I think, to separate out the the real information from the hype. And I want to take this opportunity to recommend a really great um, podcast and video series called Mystery Hype Theater 3000. And this is something that is produced by Emily Bender and Alex Hanna from the DARE Foundation, D-A-I-R, DARE. They're a great, great institution. Um, These are highly qualified experts, and they do a really hilarious job of of poking holes in all these fantastic claims that people are making right now. So I would encourage your listeners to check that out. Awesome. And we'll put a link to that in in the show notes as well. You know, honestly, there are, are lots of issues with training data also, such as undesirable training data, kind of what you point out, pointed out earlier for predicting the next word or token for LLMs. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, when it comes to training data, especially the sort of initial uh, pre-training stage of, of creating LLMs, I'd say there's three main issues. So, so the first is that the training data is largely scraped from the web. So it contains all those biases we talked about w- w- that are out there in the world that we might not want to repeat. And it's very difficult when you're training, you know, with something like a trillion words to clean out the things that people might consider undesirable, like obvious hate speech, for example. But even if you were able to do that, there's everyday content that poses issues. So if you consider the fact that at least in the U.S., a doctor is more likely to be a man, a nurse is more likely to be a woman, just statistically, this is going to be reflected in the training data. And since an LLM deals in probabilities, if you ask ChatGPT, for example, to write you a story about a doctor and a nurse, and I just tested this out, by the way, and it's true, it's very likely to make the doctor male and the nurse female, right? And there's nothing really inherently wrong with that. Um, But if you think about it at the aggregate level, it does compound and reinforce these stereotypes. And then there also generates a problem where, so for example, if you give it a story in which the doctor is female and the nurse is male, and then you ask it to provide a summary, it's more likely to make a mistake. So it creates accuracy issues as well. Um, It's very likely to get those genders switched. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty wild. And then, yeah. and then, and then, obviously, you've you've got this recent these recent lawsuits about you know copyright infringement too. Right, right, exactly. Um, the, you know, the content might be copyrighted; it might contain sensitive or personal information, uh, and this information could get repeated in the LLM's output. And I, I would say, in any case, I think people just have kind of a weird feeling about the fact that you know I created this content, I put the, I put that out there with the intention of of humans reading it and benefiting from it. Um, I didn't really intend for it to be used to train LLMs, so it's kind of a, a gray area from an ethical standpoint. Yeah, definitely an issue. 
And, and look, to improve accuracy, there, there are different approaches, right? You can fine-tune on the domain content, like, you know, the legal cases in Lexis, Nexus, you know, cone council product. You've got human-generated examples of correct behavior as the second one. And then, and then third, you can obviously really limit the LLM to very specific documents. Like I saw someone uh, using an LLM to to pull out stuff from the user manual of an aircraft, for example. So what are the pros and cons of these three different approaches? Yeah, yeah. So so this is, like you're saying, all about accuracy. And uh, you'll, you'll notice I didn't consider factual accuracy as, uh, as an issue with LLMs because I consider that just to be uh, really more of a feature than a bug. <laughs> you know, it's um, a lot of times people refer to inaccurate information as hallucinations by the model. Uh, and I think the term hallucination is really misleading because it makes it sound like the model is, well, first of all, that the model is alive or has some, you know, consciousness, which it doesn't, <laughs> even though it feels like it does. Um, and, and it feels like, you know, oh, yeah, it wants to produce accurate information, but sometimes it just gets confused and it hallucinates. Uh, but in fact, you know, that since the model is only trained to generate probable text, it, the whole thing is really just one big hallucination that, like you're saying, has to be sort of reined in with with these different techniques. Um, so yeah, I can I can go through these these techniques kind of one by one and and describe them. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I mean, I mean, first one, fine tuning on domain content. What what are the pros and cons there? Uh, yeah. So and I should say these can also be used in combination with each other. So so fine tuning on domain content means that you take the original large language model and you update it in a way that gives more weight to the way that the language is used in that particular domain, like you mentioned, uh, legal, you know, there can also be medical or uh, other, you know, biology, other kinds of domains. And so this means that the output is more likely to follow the patterns um, in that domain content. But again, just because of the way it's inherently trained, it doesn't guarantee accuracy. Um, and then the second technique you mentioned is feeding the model human-generated examples of both inaccurate and uh, accurate and inaccurate responses, right? And then rewarding it for preferring the accurate responses. And this this has been shown to somewhat improve accuracy. To me, it feels very inadequate and and kind of a strange way of going about it, to be honest, because you can't really predict all of the possible inaccuracies, right? You can't you can't anticipate them all and fix them ahead of time. So that that would be the, the drawback there. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised it it works at all, but apparently it does. Um, and then the third technique is is uh, often referred to as RAG, R A G. Uh, which is short for retrieval augmented generation. And this is very popular these days. There's a lot of RAG companies out there getting started. And this is a multi-step process where you use one set of models to match a query, so kind of more of a traditional search situation. Uh, you match a query to a set of documents which are likely to contain the answer. And then in the second step, you have the LLM produce an answer based just on those documents. So you narrow the focus down to something that you've feel is likely to contain the correct answer. Uh, so this is also helpful because you can show the user the original text so they can verify whether the LLM got the answer right or not. The problem I see there, it, it does improve accuracy, um, but again, the, the problem is that there are still a lot of very interesting ways in which the answer can be wrong. Um, and 
interestingly, not surprising to me though, it they, those those problems are are linguistically uh, oriented. So it will get confused again about like what pronoun refers to what object, or about whether a situation is hypothetical or factual. So because of these kinds of issues, we're really just back to the problem we discussed earlier, where we have the problem of humans trusting the system too much. Uh, if they have to go and check every single answer to make sure it's correct, then it's not really adding a lot of value. Yeah, it's always been an interesting uh, question for me. It's like, how does the human brain keep track of what's reality and what's fantasy so well? Like, you know, Star Wars is pretend, but, you know, the, the President Trump is real, right? Like, it's like, it's 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 just amazing that the human brain can yeah. do that. Yeah, absolutely. So you re- reposted the letter from Congress about uh, ghost workers to the heads of a bunch of big AI companies, including Microsoft and Google. Like, tell us more about that. Uh, yeah. So I was I was really happy to see that letter. This was a, a really well researched and well informed letter from uh, from our elected officials. Um, I believe it was from Ed Markey and. Um, uh, let's see, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were on there. There's about eight, eight Congress people all together. And I think it addresses this issue of ghost workers, which is an aspect of AI that is really still largely misunderstood by the general public. So I, 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 I'm glad you asked because I think it's worth going into a little more, more detail on this. Um, so we just talked about the issues caused by training LLMs on huge data sets and the work that goes into fine-tuning them to improve the quality of their output. Now, the only way to really do this effectively requires humans to read the content and provide explicit feedback. So this process of human review is, is actually the cornerstone of a lot of work in AI going back decades for both text and image data. Um, it's been really big in image data for self-driving cars, for example. You need to identify what's a pedestrian, what's a lamppost, all this kind of stuff. So, so going back to my first tech job in 1999, I've, I've always needed some kind of workforce to do what we call labeling or annotation of this data. And when I need to scale this up to large amounts of data, then my main options are to either go with vendors who hire contractors to do the work or to post annotation jobs on platforms where gig workers can log on and perform the task. So these are people who just create an account on a platform like Mechanical Turk or Appen, and then they just scroll through looking for jobs to do for for, for fairly low pay. And these are workers, again, who are kind of uh, distributed all around the world. Uh, this happened, There's a lot of workers in the U.S. and a lot of workers in, in other countries as well. And in both cases, there's a real risk that these workers are being exploited in some way. So either through low wages, bad working conditions, um, or just generally unfair labor practices. There was a book published in 2019 called Ghost Work, and this was written by Mary Gray and Siddharth Suri. And this is a great investigation into the whole issue. It popularized the term ghost worker uh, to reflect the fact that this work is largely hidden. So tech companies would like to have you think that AI is magic and it's just dreamed up by our, all our brilliant scientists and engineers. But really, it's dependent on literally millions of workers around the wor- world 
So what this letter that you asked about was asking for is um, for these big tech companies to respond to a number of questions about their use of these data workers and how they ensure fair labor practices. Gotcha. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And I guess the question really is, have we reached the limits of large language models now? I am not going to bet against <laughs> large language models right now. Um, uh, it's probably not not a winning bet. Uh, I think there's still interesting research going on, uh, but I I still think that I, I've described LLMs to people as the world's greatest party trick. I mean, they're they're amazing, but the more you dig into them, the more limitations there are, and the more you really have to question what are the appropriate use cases for something that you really cannot understand or effectively control. So. I'm hoping that people are going to continue to explore other forms of AI, including other machine learning models and also uh, symbolic representations of syntax and semantics. Uh, That's something that was way more in fashion 20 years ago, these symbolic systems, but I think that they still play a a big role in what we're doing. Um, And I'd also like to see us focus more on specific use cases. Again, getting back to these narrow use cases um, where we can really think about who is benefiting and what would be the societal impact of of building the system. Yeah, and I, I think we might also see you know resurgence of composite AI, where you use other types of AI to organize large language models, or vice versa. Something like that could happen too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and how do you, how do you um, so so you mentioned Rob Mar- Monarch's book to me earlier called Human in the Loop Machine Learning. So obviously. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get uh, humans more in the loop to to prevent these kind of runaway AI problems? You know, what do you, what were your important takeaways from that and from from the book? Yeah, yeah, this is a, a great book, which is a, a a really important read for anybody who is working in data set preparation, uh, data labeling, uh, data metrics. I, I think what Rob's big point there is is that this is a very complex uh, issue that is really worth spending time uh, spending time on. So, for example, really understanding your data set, profiling your data, doing exploratory data analysis to understand what the data is covering and what is not covering. And then as you go to label your data, think about ways that you might uh, you know, automate part of the labeling. Think about ways that you can use metrics that really reflect what your use case is. So, a, a kind of a, a classic example is the distinction between precision and recall. So, in some situations, you want to have a system which is highly precise, where every single answer is reliably correct, even if you miss some of the uh, some, some of the answers. Um, other cases you want high recall. you want to uh, you want to collect as many examples as possible, even if they're uh, potentially incorrect. So so thinking more critically about metrics and uh, data uh, and just this whole set of best practices, I think are are not necessarily widely adopted yet, but they're really important to learn. Yeah, that totally makes sense. yeah, we we talked a little bit about um you know, the letter from, from some of the congressmen before. And, you know, the Europeans just passed their first law regulating uh, AI. I'm just curious 
what else you think the U.S. politicians might do to regulate AI in the next few years or so? Yeah, yeah. The Europeans um, have a healthier appetite for regulation. And I, I, I li- I'm glad that, you know, somebody's kind of leading the charge on that and, and uh, you know, showing, showing what, what might be done uh, along these lines. I mean, I, I think the regulation, some people have suggested things like, let's make sure that we know who is building really large language models or really large models in general. Uh, these models require a lot of compute, which is going to be uh, require chips. So, you know, can we ask uh, NVIDIA to let us know if they have huge orders for chips? Can we ask, you know, AWS or, or, or Google Cloud to tell us if there was a really large order for um, for compute? Um, so so that's, that's one way in which we might at least kind of track uh, who is working on on what so that that might be one form of regulation uh the other aspect of it is kind of what is what is the output what is the impact and there might be uh, i'm not an expert on this but my understanding is that there are probably existing laws that we could look for um enforcing more or applying more broadly to ai systems uh but i think you know in any case um we just really need to consider the impact of the systems themselves and and how they're developed and just start tackling them one by one. Yeah, it totally makes sense. So in terms of giving advice, like how how can corporate and world leaders potentially use AI for good, do you think? Yeah, so I think it really comes down initially to education. So there's the uh, Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI, and they've been holding boot camps for congressional staffers uh, for some time now, actually, but they just had another one in August. And I think this is the kind of thing that we should see more of. It, it seems like, you know, it, we in the past, we when social media was first launched, you know, we didn't really understand what the impact was going to be on society. And tech companies said like, oh, it'll be great. And now we're seeing the harms. And I think that lawmakers are and the public are now understanding that, you know, no, we need to at least try to anticipate some of the unanticipated, you know, unintended consequences uh, of these, uh, of these kinds of, uh, you know, really powerful systems. And so when a broader array of people outside the tech industry have this kind of knowledge, then they can apply it to their areas of expertise. So, for example, if you work with at-risk youth, uh, what kind of changes have they told you that they need? Are there any opportunities for applying AI to facilitate those changes? So I would say, you know, to, to use AI for good, start with the real needs as they're understood by the people closest to the problem. Don't rely on tech companies to provide all the answers. Yeah, I, I wrote an article about uh, you can't trust big tech to regulate themselves. You know, not a good idea, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as we've learned, as we've all learned from uh, from uh, social media. Now, now, yeah, I, I sorry, I just, I just want to say also that, that I don't want to paint tech companies as as being these like evil monsters because within tech company, I know you're not either, but um, but within tech companies, I'd say that there's a lot of really good people who have really good intentions, and especially now with AI, you know, you, you see tech companies coming out asking for their own regulation. You can be cynical about that, and, and maybe you should be uh, about the fact that some of this might be self-serving. Um, but I will say that there is a lot of individuals within tech companies who are concerned about the impact that their work is having. And so, it, it, but, it, but we really have like a, 
we're, we, we really tend to be in a bubble. We, we don't necessarily understand the rest of the world. So we really need um, everybody in, in all different industries and backgrounds to be involved. Yeah, I totally agree. My, my broader point is just you can't have any industry regulate itself. Just in, doesn't work, whether it's you know Absolutely. energy or finance or, or technology. It just doesn't work, unfortunately. So, so uh, shifting gears to, and thinking about data teams, you know, what's your advice about building a data team? Obviously, you don't want you know clones, uh, you know, all clones on a data team. What different types of skill sets do you need to be successful? Yeah, um, I, I'm glad you asked about it in terms of skill sets as opposed to titles, because uh, I will say that titles like data scientist, machine learning engineer, applied scientist, these are um, th- these are things that kind of have different meanings to different companies. So if you're thinking about it in terms of, of skill sets, it depends a little bit on what data they're working with. Uh, but at a basic level, you do need people with statistics, machine learning, um, the ability to engineer data pipelines. These things are all important. Uh, as a linguist, I would say that it's a huge advantage to have someone with a linguistics background if you're working with language data. Uh, language is harder than you think. That is, that is the, the big message that I try to give people about language data when I'm working with non-linguists. But also, since a lot of data results from human behavior, I think you want to have people with backgrounds in sociology or anthropology um, to think both about, like, how was the data produced and also what kind of impact is it going to have on people? How are people going to interact with it? So uh, that's also important, sociology, anthropology. Um, and then, of course, it's good to have someone with expertise in whatever domain you're working in. So whether you're working in medical, legal, education, um, you know, you don't, you can, you can rely on stakeholders who are subject matter experts and you do want to kind of keep close ties with them. But if you have somebody on your team who has a deep understanding of that domain, that's very helpful too. Yeah, that seems pretty critical. Yeah, and, and what about risk managing AI? Obviously, we're just starting to talk about that. It's, it seems to be first, we're going to put our AI, AI, AI out there, and then later on, like, ooh, it did something bad. But obviously, we want to get in front of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, at the most basic level, you want to start by being really clear on your goal and how you're going to measure success. Um, so you, you don't want to work with hypotheticals like, um, you know, I, I think, I think this person, this type of person is going to want or need this type of, uh, system. I, I think doctors will want an AI assistant who suggests drugs that prescribe, uh, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to kind of go on the surface level understandings like that. You want to get a deep understanding of the domain and the people who will be affected by, by your product. And, and then to risk manage, you also want to find out what the existing inequities are because the AI systems are going to have a tendency to amplify them. So if you are, for example, working in a medical domain and you you find that, that certain populations are underrepresented in that data, um, be aware of that and have a plan to to mitigate the fact that those, those people will be underrepresented. Um, and then you also just need to understand that once you put a system in production, it's not a set it and forget it situation. You're going to have to monitor it because the data and the world around you are going to continue to change. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And and let's let's think about the people in college or undergrads right now are like, oh, I want to get involved in AI. Like, what what advice do you have for them? What kind of classes should they take or interns internships should they look for? 
Uh, yeah. So if you want to get involved in AI, I, I would say get the basic skills you need to experiment with existing models. And there's a lot of really uh, good platforms and off-the-shelf models that you can get started with right now. And, you know, in the, in the old days, you had to have like a really deep understanding of machine learning in order to, to apply these. But, but these days, you know, you don't need to build models from scratch. You just need to be able to know how to, how to use these tools. Um, so that, that's one thing. I think the other thing is to just develop expertise in whatever field really sparks your interest. So that domain knowledge is really what it's what's going to be important for finding new applications and building successful implementations. And then finally, think about what kind of mark you'd like to make on the world. So at, at some point in your life, you're going to <laughs> say this from experience, at some point you're going to step back and say, what impact am I really having here? Is it, is it really for the better? And so I start thinking about that early. You know, you don't have to solve all the world's problems. Just make a contribution that moves us in a direction that's really aligned with your principles and your beliefs. That's great advice. Part of the reason I have a podcast. So uh, <laughs> our, our last five minutes is a, is a lightning round where I mention different things and ask if you think they're underrated or overrated and why. So uh, first one is, first person is Noam Chomsky, underrated or overrated? Uh, yeah. So I really hate to say overrated on Noam Chomsky. Um, I, I, I will, maybe I'll say underrated in his contribution to how we think about language. I mean, he's a foundational, seminal figure. Um, but I will reluctantly say overrated when it comes to linguistic theory. I, I really wasn't a fan of his work when I was in grad school. Uh, it was a real slog. He didn't use <laughs> nearly enough data from my perspective. Yeah. And started a long time ago. So, uh, how about growing up in Oakland, California, underrated or overrated? Uh, I will say underrated, um, just based on Oakland's reputation. Um, for me, it was a really, you know, it was a beautiful, you know, growing up by Lake Merritt was beautiful. It was exciting. It was diverse. It was vibrant. Um, but I, I also just kind of don't want to diminish the fact that it really depends on what neighborhood you can afford to live in. And there are definitely everyday struggles for Oakland. So, but shout out to Oakland as a really wonderful city. Awesome. The book Atlas of AI by Kate Crawford, no relation. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I'll say underrated because I assume that a lot of people haven't heard of it. And I think it's a, a great book. So there's this, like we discussed, this manufactured image of AI as this mysterious, ethereal thing. But she really goes into the real impact on society and the environment. Awesome. Electric vehicles for commuting. Oh, for commuting. Okay. Um, yeah, because I, I would say uh, they're underrated as far as private car ownership goes. So if you, if you need to have your own car, I mean, I love my Tesla. I would never go back to a gas-powered car. Um, but I do think that, you know, when it comes to things like commuting, if there, we have a system where everybody has to rely on a private car for transportation. That's just not sustainable. Yeah, fair enough. The TV show Reservation Dogs on Hulu. Yeah, again, I'll, I'll say underrated to the extent that maybe people haven't heard of it. Uh, this is a, a show about a group of teenagers growing up on a reservation in Oklahoma. It's really well written, really well cast, and it's uh, it represents an insider's view of, of Native life in the U.S. that I think is really missing from popular culture. 
the quality of the AI courses on Coursera? Um, I, I guess I'll say underrated because, um, again, I, <laughs> I don't want to, I, I don't want to say overrated uh, as if they're not good, but I haven't taken a course there in a while. So, so I can't say for sure. Um, but I, I do want to take this opportunity to plug a new course there called AI for good, um, which is, uh, produced by Rob Monarch, who we talked about earlier. And, uh, he's an expert in machine learning, but he's also has a really, amazing background in humanitarian work and has a, a lot of, you know, great things to teach us about that. Awesome. Yeah. And I think Andrew Eng's course is on there too. Uh, oh yeah. The George Orwell classic 1984. Yeah. So I actually haven't read this since high school. Um, and so I, I, I hesitate to say that it's, uh, that it's underrated, but, um, but I will say that it, it really resonated with me at the time. So I had, already traveled in East Germany and made friends there. And I, it, it you know, I, I knew that privacy, freedom, access to trustworthy information, these are, these are not things we can take for granted, you know, in, in our, in our society or in our world in, in any decade. Absolutely. Gavin Newsom, governor of California, underrated or overrated? This is a, a tough one. I almost don't want to touch it because I, I, I'd like to say underrated because he stands up for a lot of really good legislation in California. I think he does a, a good job representing, um, you know, the, the, the goals and the values that, that we have as a state. Um, but, you know, he's, he disappoints me sometimes. I am not really happy with the way he handled the whole Dianne Feinstein situation, for example. Yeah. Uh, the Harry Potter series, underrated or overrated? Oh, I, I, okay. Overrated. <laughs> I, I read, I did read the first book. Um, I, I found it kind of a slog and I wasn't interested in the other books. I didn't find the movies that great. I, I, you know, I think it, it probably depends on what you read in your childhood because I grew up on Chronicles of Narnia and, and I, I, I would, those might be overrated too, but for me, like that's the gold standard. Ethical AI underrated or overrated. Uh, I guess underrated. Um, I, I, I don't think you can overrate it, I guess that's what I'll say. Fair enough. Uh, vegan restaurants, underrated or overrated? I'll say underrated. I actually just had lunch at a vegan restaurant yesterday in Sunnyvale and it was great. Awesome. And last, the thriller movie, Run, Lola Run, underrated or overrated? Yeah, again, uh, I'm going to say underrated, assuming that a lot of people haven't heard about it. Uh, this is a German movie from, gosh, I want to say 1990 or some, some sometime around then, um, in the 90s anyway. It's it's a really clever, fast-paced thriller. I, I also like it because it's set in Berlin. I love Berlin. It's my favorite city. It's where my father is from. So yeah, that movie has this place in my heart. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been an interview with Karin Golda. PhD, founder at West Valley AI, startup executive and Amazon alumna. Thank you for coming on the show, Kareen. Thanks, Alec. It was a real pleasure to be here. You're listening to The State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks.
sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. 